You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here today with uh, William Derezowitz, who is the author of a number of books. The most recent book is a series of essays called The End of Solitude, Selected Essays on Culture and Society. Also, perhaps most famously known for this book called um, Excellent Sheep, The Miseducation of the American Elite, and The Way to a Meaningful Life. Also, this book here, The Death of the Artist. And I guess, was this your first book, uh, Jane Austen Education? It's my first commercial book. I also have an academic book from when I was an academic, yes. Yeah. Now, I think I first want to start off by talking about your experience at Yale and the circumstances under which you left Yale. But I think the bigger picture, I remember it was in 1987, I guess it was the fall of 87 when I read Alan Bloom's book, right? I remember when it came out. Yeah, that's when it came out. Yeah. The Closing of the American Mind. Yeah. And I think it became a surprise bestseller, right? I mean, this is not the kind of book that you would ever expect. I don't think the author expected it to become a bestseller, but it became a bestseller and sort of a touchstone for a lot of folks. I don't know, it's probably more popular outside of the academy than inside of the academy. And I think, you know, your book also, when it came out, became, I guess, an unexpected bestseller and also became kind of a touchstone. And, you know, there are some similarities in terms of the themes in the books, but also, you know, a lot had changed over the 20 years or so, or 30 years between the publication of the first and the second book. And I think a lot has actually changed since you wrote that book. And today, the question is, you know, are we on sort of this linear trend? You know, are there things that are countervailing forces? Are these books just obituaries? (laughs) Or, you know, are they actually instigating some kind of change? But those are the broader questions I really want to talk about. But I guess maybe, why don't we just start off by telling us a bit about, you made this big transition in your life where you left academia and went off to become a writer in the wilderness, so to speak. For me, as somebody who spent pretty much his entire life in academia, that to me is kind of a scary thought, right? (laughs) To just be completely cut off from this community in which you devoted your entire adult life. And I think it was not a voluntary separation. That's right. It was very scary being cut off from a community. I didn't know how much that bothered me. Being cut off from a regular paycheck definitely bothered me. And being cut off from students bothered me a very great deal. Yeah. As you know, in the collection that came out last year, The End of Solitude, there's a new piece that I wrote for it that was also published on Quillette, so people can find it online, called Why I Left Academia, parentheses, since you're wondering. Like, why would you be wondering? Well, because I write a lot about academia and the importance of college and what college should be about and so on and so forth. And Excellent Sheep is a different book in many ways from The Closing of the American Mind, but there's definitely overlap. And I found that book very useful in writing Excellent Sheep. So why did I leave? I left, as you said, because I didn't have a choice. I did my PhD, got a job as an uh, untenured assistant professor at Yale. When you get a position like that, unless you are self-delusional, you don't expect to make your career at the institution that's hired you. Places like Yale, you know, leading research universities, only tenure people if they have already achieved the status as world leaders in the field, which is generally when they make tenured hires, they usually bring in people from the outside who have established their reputation elsewhere. And the junior faculty spend a few years, publish as much as they can, and then move on to their next job, which is what I expected to do, and which is what I saw the people ahead of me in the English department do do. And I did publish a decent amount, and I thought I would get that next job, but I made a couple of fundamental mistakes, and I knew I was making them, and I thought I could get away with it, and in the end, I didn't. And the mistakes I made all had to do with doing anything other than concentrating with demented single-mindedness on my academic research, which is the only thing you're rewarded for in academia, despite what universities like to pretend. Uh, Yes, in some kinds of institutions like community colleges, teaching matters a lot. In research, in prestigious environments or even just research environments, but also, you know, selective liberal arts colleges, really, what matters is your research. 
maybe the teaching matters a little more for selective liberal arts colleges, but the main thing is still. So I cared about my students. I became a professor because I wanted to teach. So I spent a lot of time getting good as a teacher, preparing class, and talking to students. Being a mentor, it's what I love to do. And you're not supposed to do that. In fact, winning the teaching award, this is literally something that like the head of the Carnegie Foundation said once, winning the teaching award is the kiss of death at tenure time. And then the other thing I did was I didn't just do academic writing. I had already been a freelance writer on the side while I was in graduate school. In fact, even a little bit before I started graduate school. And I continued to do it because I liked to do it and because I thought it was important for academics to speak to a general audience. I was an English professor. And while I was at Yale, I wrote book reviews for the New York Times Book Review and then eventually for some magazines. You know, none of that counts. People think that it counts. It doesn't count. So that's what happened. I thought I applied to lots and lots of schools my last few years at Yale for my next job and came close to a few of them, but it just never actually happened, which was unthinkable to me. It was unthinkable to me a few months before I finally accepted that this is where my life was headed. But here we are 15 years later. Now, look, to me, this is, I'm still puzzled by this, right? I've had a lot of discussions about this. And if, for instance, you know, we were observing football from a distance and we saw that very, very talented, you know, football players were being, you know, shunted out of the profession of football. And, you know, the folks that kind of rose to the top were people who were good at something that was, different from football, right? We, we would say, what the heck is going on here, right? So, you know, we talk about how you're supposed to be doing both research and teaching and service, and these are the three planks to professorial position. But at the end of the day, we just focus on research. You know, I guess there is some kind of functional logic to that. And the functional logic would make a lot of sense if, for instance, the majority of the funding for the university came from research. So if we were getting all these NSF grants and the NSF grants were fueling the budget. And the only way to get NSF grants was to, you know, invent new particles and stuff like that. That would kind of make sense. But what's happening in the English department, for instance, that research is not generating any revenue and it's not helping to train the students for their careers as investment bankers and management consultants. If anything, it might be, I would think, impairing their capacities in those roles. So how do we explain this? Well, I don't necessarily agree with that. Okay. But certainly the research that the English professors do isn't helping them, right? I mean, but you asked the right question. The question is, in your analogy, how do we define football? What is football in the university? What is it that the university is supposed to do? And actually, I think more than any other institution I can think of, universities serve multiple purposes for multiple constituencies. And this is part of the problem. Or at least it's a tension that always needs to be managed. But... I don't think it tends to be managed very well. For reasons we could trace historically, the modern university, which comes into its own in the United States, it comes from Germany, but in the United States, it's the late 19th century, is, as is sometimes called, a knowledge factory, right? That's its role in society, is to produce knowledge or research. And it's research on a certain kind of scientific model. Science is the model, in other words. It's empirical, factual, and theoretical knowledge about the external world. Let's put it like that. And the social sciences, as the name implies, try to approximate a scientific approach. There's a lot of debate about whether they should and whether they do within the social sciences. But even worse, the humanities have also always tried to do that because science is the standard of knowledge and knowledge is the standard of excellence, of achievement, of purpose in the university. This has created some big problems. So first of all, I don't think the humanities can be fitted to a scientific model and the attempts to do so tend to take the humanities in foolish directions of one kind or another. And second of all, where does teaching fit into all of that? And that's been a question, you know, ever since the late 19th century. A lot of professors and departments conceive of their roles simply as training future specialists in their fields, which is more appropriate in STEM fields and not appropriate at all in humanities fields. And I would say, I said this when I was at Yale, and no, like they literally, my colleagues literally could not hear me say this. I would say, our purpose as teachers of undergraduates, which is mostly what we taught and what you and I are talking about, our purpose is not to produce future graduate students. 
We graduate, say, 100 students. We have 100 majors a year then. I'm sure it's nowhere near that number now. And maybe five of them go on to do PhDs in English Lit. And we wouldn't even want more than five because those five are going to have enough trouble finding jobs. So what are we doing for the other 95? And nobody had an answer because nobody ever thought about it. Academic prestige, the prestige of a university or of a department or of a professor is entirely, you know, their name in the larger world is entirely about research. That's just a fact. It's not about the quality of teaching. As far as students are concerned, students have been completely, there's actually a great book about, it's the only history so far, came out two, three years ago, a guy named Jonathan Zimmerman at the University of Pennsylvania. It's called The Amateur Hour. It's a history of college teaching in the United States. And the big message is it's always sucked and students have always complained. But at the end of the day, what students really care about is the degree, is the credential. And as long as they get the credential and to, I mean, employers complain too, but not enough to make a difference. They still keep hiring people and they still keep complaining and the system keeps going on as it is. So this is why college teaching never gets better. And one of the big reasons it doesn't get better is that professors are not incentivized to be better teachers. Right. But as an economist, I mean, I'm puzzled why, you know, we don't have more competition when each of these universities aggressively compete for the best students. And so we talk about how the students are now customers. And so if we're pandering to the students and we're trying to give the students what they want, this isn't what they want. At least I wouldn't think this is what they want. Well, it is and it isn't. Okay. I mean, yes, students hate having lousy teachers, but they're not choosing a school based on how good they think the teachers are. They really aren't. Kids who go to selective liberal arts colleges or even just not selective liberal arts colleges, they may care more or, well, they probably care about a certain kind of communal experience where they are having more contact with teachers, among other things. But that sector is quite small. You know, the thing that people like to repeat is that you could take the student bodies of the top 100 liberal arts colleges, you know, places like Amherst and, you know, the Claremont colleges, the not universities. You could take those 100 student bodies and fit them all in the University of Michigan football stadium at the same time. You know, there are millions of people enrolled in undergraduate degrees right now, and maybe 100,000 go to the top 100 liberal arts colleges. So students are not picking their university or college based on how good the teaching is or how good they think the teaching is. They're picking it mainly, if we're talking about selective colleges and universities, they're picking it based on the name. They're picking it based on the name, on the financial aid they get. And if they're not going to selective schools, which is most students, they're probably picking it based on proximity. They're going to the public university in their area or the community college. Right. So they're picking it based on the name. They're picking it to get the credential. And the quality of the name is a function of the selectiveness. It's a function of the, well, in part, the research output, right? I mean, that feeds ultimately back into the ranking to some degree, right? I'm not so sure that it feeds into the U.S. news ranking. There are other rankings of research. It's not clear to me how those two things are connected, except you know how they're connected? They're connected through money. That's how they're connected. Harvard has great research because Harvard has a huge endowment. Harvard has, is high in the rankings of the U.S. News undergraduate rankings because it can throw a lot of money at undergraduate education. Low teacher-student ratio, high financial aid. And then, of course, just because it has the name that it has, which to a great extent is a function of the fact that it's simply the oldest college in the country. Right. And prestigious in higher ed is correlated with age. But then if that's true, then if you have high prestige, then presumably you have some flexibility and some freedom to maybe deviate from the norm, right? And so presumably if you had brave leadership in charge of a high prestige, high endowment university, they could simply say, hey, you know what? We're going to shift to a different model, right? So, I mean, how do we explain the conformity? I mean, you talk about the students being sheep, but how do we explain why the administrative decision-making, the endowments, the people who are the donors, the faculty, you know, why do we see so much conformity and agreement around what constitutes the purpose of the university? Well, they're each, everyone's acting on the incentives that bear on them. We can talk about courageous leadership and it would be nice to have some. And there have been times in the past when college presidents, some of them are presidents of Harvard, but not only, really helped change the direction of American higher education. We don't have that now, and we can talk about why, but fundamentally, no one's unhappy 
none of the people you talk about, you just mentioned, you know, administrators, donors, no one's unhappy with the situation. They, they think it's great. I mean, they probably tell themselves that the teaching is great because they don't know or they're kidding themselves, but fundamentally they don't care. And the students, if you're a student at Harvard, you're very happy that you're at Harvard. You may be unhappy with the fact that your class is being taught by a postdoc, but you're thrilled. You're going to graduate with a Harvard degree. Harvard isn't going to change its model, and it's certainly not going to change the model to say, Harvard faculty, you need to spend more time in your teaching. If anything, they spend less and less time all the time. I think Harvard went from four courses a year to three courses a year some time ago for their faculty because they want to hire the best people in the fields, and the best people are researchers. That's what it means. And what will incentivize them to come, other than the Harvard name and the fat salary, is you can do less teaching here than at other places. You never have to talk to one of your students if you don't want to. And they don't. Many of them don't. Well, now, look, in other parts of the world, we have a division of labor. And, you know, ever since Adam Smith, we've been talking about specialization. And it seems like with the behavior, I mean, the revealed behavior of academics is that they don't think that there necessarily is a correlation between good teaching and good research. But it seems like we still have that shared belief. You, in, the, in both of your books, bemoan the kind of emergence of the kind of adjuncts or the professional teachers. But, you know, why couldn't we get the best of both worlds by simply saying to our researchers, look, just go do your research and we'll get the prestige associated with that. And then we'll have these folks who are professional teachers and they'll, you know, educate the undergraduates. Would that in some way jeopardize the other objectives of the university? I mean, it seems like we, I mean, business schools do that to some degree. You know, I teach probably 20 classes a year, right? And, and I don't, and I don't publish. And that seems to work okay in business. Why don't we see that in say the humanities or the social sciences? In other words, have adjuncts that instead of being downtrodden, beleaguered, underpaid folks actually get prestige and respect for what it is that they do. That's exactly what I think we should do. And people have talked about it. Have a separate teaching faculty that's equal in pay, prestige, and institutional power to the research faculty. Or you could have kind of hybrids where, you know, you need to do some of this, some of that, or all of this or all of that, but then, you know, it has to all add up to the same thing, but it could be however, or separate, whatever. No one's ever wanted to do that. I mean, I think there's a feeling that it needs to be the experts who teach. I think that's foolish, certainly with undergraduate classes. Maybe your, you know, your capstone seminars in the major, you want people who are on the leading edge, et cetera, et cetera. But in fact, the best teachers are often not the faculty, and rather not the appointed professors. There's actually a whole class of academics that people don't talk about very much. That's something like a third of the entire faculty. They're not professor rank, but they're also not adjuncts. They're full-time, non-tenure-track faculty, typically on you know one to three or five-year contracts, who are really de facto teaching faculty, but they're not equal in pay or prestige or job security. And I think that professors, even if they don't like teaching, they sort of want to be the teacher, the professor of record. It's kind of part of their self-conception. So I think that's why it's never done. And again, because universities continue to pretend to themselves that they do care about teaching and that their regular research faculty are competent teachers. Nobody actually wants to see the reality. Yeah, I mean, sometimes I, I, when I listened in on some of the faculty conversations at my school, the research faculty bemoaned the fact that there are so many non-research faculty, but whenever the proposals... <laughs> Do they? Yeah, but when the proposals come up to kind of, you know, reduce their numbers, well, that means you got to shrink the tuition-paying students, and then that means you got to shrink everybody's salary, and nobody likes that, and so nobody seems to be happy. No, or it just means that you have to teach more. Yeah, no, that's not acceptable either. You're the first person, I, I believe you, but this is the first time I've ever heard anyone say that the regular professors complain about, it's like they're doing your work for you. If you don't want them around, just do the work that they're doing. Yeah, well, you know, I've heard a number of stories about a number of models about how education is primarily all about signaling, right? So the reason why you go to university now is so that you can get your credential. And most of what you're doing before university is getting the credentials that help you to kind of get the credentials. And, you know, my understanding of signaling is that, you know, you signal in order to get something. 
And okay, fine. But at some point, you're supposed to get that something instead of just getting admission to the next round of signaling. Right? I mean, have we gone to a world where it's kind of signaling all the way down, right? You know, you just spend your entire life signaling and you spend your entire life accumulating credentials. I mean, have credentials become just a ticket to more credentials? Do we need to go all the way to the end and say, you know, make people ask the question, like, why are you doing this in the first place? And then hopefully work backwards to unravel the system of nonstop credentialing? No, I don't agree with your analysis. I mean, I agree that it is an endless pursuit of status. That I agree with. And it's often an empty pursuit that makes people miserable and makes everybody around them miserable. But no, once you stop going to school, whatever that is, after high school, after college, after graduate school, those credentials then cash out literally in a job. That's what the signaling is for. It's to get a job. And so people are accumulating those credentials so they can get lucrative jobs. And they do. And it's money and it's status and sometimes it's power. So I don't think it's signaling all the way down, but we can ask, yes, like I said, we can ask about what are the psychological drives behind it and whether it's leading to any good personally or socially. But it's precisely because the signaling power of academic credentials does have very real world consequences that people continue to pursue them. And I wouldn't tell somebody not to go to college because if you look at average lifetime earnings, the difference between college graduates and non-college graduates is vast. But I think if you're an employer, right? Yes, you want somebody who has signaled in a credible way that they have certain competencies. But why would the current content of an undergraduate education be the content that would necessarily provide the best signal? Is there some functionality to the employers of having students that spend four years pretty much not asking questions about, you know, who they want to be and what they want to do and what constitutes virtue and so forth? I mean, one would think that employers would value employees with this type of mindset. So what's the functionality there? Yeah, I think we can go way too far in the direction of saying, and people have gone way too far, in the direction of saying that college and education in general is just about signaling. I think that's foolish. I mean, yes, I certainly want college to provide a better education than it generally does, and I would say the same thing about high school. But you use the word content. There is plenty of content to a college education. And, you know, again, I think it's a deeply flawed system, but I think people do, on average, graduate from college with a lot more mental equipment than they graduated from high school or than people who just went to high school. In some fields, it's very clear. If we're talking about technical fields, STEM fields, employers want, they do want what you learned in college now. And you could say, well, that knowledge is going to be obsolete in five or 10 years. And I'll say, yeah, but they're not hiring you in five or 10 years. They're hiring you now. And you're not going to be working for them in five or 10 years. Or if you are, you're going to you know, continue to learn on the job. In terms of non-technical fields, I think you are learning. You are, or at least potentially should. Again, there's so many different students, so many different schools. A lot of schools are crappy. But if we're talking about selective colleges and universities, again, I have lots of complaints about them. But I think it would be silly to say that you're not getting anything out of it. Ideally, you're learning how to learn. That's the most important thing. So, you know, you can continue to retool yourself, but you're learning communication skills. You're learning, actually, you're, there's a, a very strong socialization element. Look, I think if employers really felt that they could get people who are just as good without a college degree, I mean, to a certain extent, they're just covering their ass, but I think to a certain extent, they would. And, you know, people like to talk, people like Peter Thiel like to talk about, oh, I'm going to hire people. Well, then start doing it, okay? Let me see you actually do it. Well, so now when you, in your book on Jane Austen, you described, I think, it was something of a pivotal moment in your life. Now, you had already decided to go to grad school, and so you'd already decided to switch into the study of literature. But when you read Emma, I mean, you had a moment of self-discovery, and you described about 10 years later another moment of self-discovery when you realized that you, you know, couldn't talk to your contractor. And- you know, when I read about the story about... In a different book. That's an excellent shape, yeah. Yeah, in a different book. But when I read the Jane Austen story, after reading that story of you in your 20s, I would never have predicted the moment that you described in your 30s. I would have thought that 
you know, what happened to you in your 20s, that moment of enlightenment would have made that future moment impossible. So, you know, what happened? I mean, to what extent was your study of literature and the way in which you studied literature working at cross purposes? Why did the moment of enlightenment that happened to you in your 20s, it seemed like it didn't completely stick or it didn't continue to evolve in that direction? Was there something that, you know, being in academia did to you that made you less capable of interacting with normal human beings, right? Or human beings from outside of the elite circles of academia? No, I don't agree with the narrative you're laying out at all. Enlightenment doesn't happen all at once, okay? The epiphany, to use an overblown word, that happened when I read Emma my second year in graduate school, because I didn't think Jane Austen had anything for me, you know, girly author, I wasn't interested. I was interested in Joyce and Conrad and so forth. And Emma was the first of Jane Austen's six novels that I read. And the moment was really about learning that I could see myself in a female protagonist, that I could see myself in someone who was different from me. I didn't have trouble doing that because I was an academic. I had trouble doing that because I was a human being. And I think that's just naturally how we are. We grow up with, you know, infantile narcissism. We think we're the center of the world. I had a relatively narrow upbringing, but I think not much more than most people. I did grow up in an Orthodox Jewish community. You know, my dad was an Ivy League professor. I went to an Ivy League college. Okay. They tend to be pretty homogenous environments, especially now. So I think there are a lot of people who grew up like that. So that first moment was about, you know, I'm more like women than I think, you know, this, here's this female protect. And then the second moment, which was about 10 years later, was the same kind of moment. It was a recognition that I, there are so many people in the world, you know, this is my plumber, who because of my homogenous upper middle class background and life up until age 34, I didn't understand and had, didn't know how to communicate with. Studying English literature did not make me more like that. What it did was it enabled me to recognize that because studying literature, which is why I advocated for everybody, I don't mean that you have to major in English, but I think that as a college student, you should definitely read a lot of literature, is because it's all about learning to see the world from other people's perspectives. And if I hadn't done that, I'm not sure I ever would have had that moment where I saw my own limitations and I wanted to fix them. And actually, I don't write about this in the book, but that guy, Bobby, who's our, we had just bought our house and he was the plumber that we called and he continued to be our plumber for the next nine years we owned the house. And, you know, I'm not going to say that I became friends with Bobby, but I learned to talk to him and he would come over and we would chat and we became friendly. And what did I learn how to do? I learned how to ask him questions about himself, not like weird, deep, awkward questions, but just like, you know, everybody has a story everybody's life is a story. And I also learned that everybody's story is interesting and that I have a lot to learn from people who don't have Ivy League degrees. It's actually in, in a Jane Austen education in connection with a different novel with Mansfield Park where I make that point because there's a scene in particular in Mansfield Park where you see that asking somebody to tell you their story is an incredibly generous and powerful thing. It's the way you show another person that they're human to you that they're valuable, that they matter as much as you do. Well, now, the experience you describe of how literature opened up doors for you, I've had similar experiences. I mean, I took a lot of classes in literature, and mostly not for credit, you know, sort of sneaking in and pretending like I was enrolled when I wasn't enrolled. You know, it seems like that's not how literature is taught if you are... Well, how do you think it's taught? Well, I mean, we, we talk about, I, I spent some time as a plus one in an English department, about four years at Duke during the 90s. And uh, it seemed like, you know, literature, there was a lot of pressure to teach literature in a very different way, right? Where it was the application of a theoretical approach to a text, which was designed almost to make impossible any kind of discovery, right, from the text. Or any kind of uh, human connection with the text. Right. Yeah. And so, you know, if we talk about the decline of the humanities, I mean, is this demand driven or supply driven? I mean, is it students who are saying, I need to get that job to go into engineering? Or is it because, you know, these classes aren't really doing much for me? Duke in the 90s, that's, that was the worst of all possible worlds in terms of theory driven approach to literature. You know, 
I resist making the opportunistic argument that the reason people have dropped out of humanity, the humanities and enrollments, you know, they've completely crashed to the point where, as you know, listeners may know, people are talking about, are the humanities in a death spiral? It would be easy for me, who critiques theoretical and politically driven approaches to say, this is why students are abandoning the humanities. I don't actually think that's the main reason they are abandoning the humanities. I think the main reason is that college is more and more expensive. And for that reason, and for also for stupid reasons, students have been increasingly for decades getting the message that you need to study something practical. There's nothing that's thought to be less practical than the humanities, although that isn't necessarily true at all. But let's leave that aside. So I think that's why. And, you know, you see where students are going. They're going to STEM fields. That's where they're going. They're going to STEM fields. I mean, most of the social sciences have also seen significant drops in enrollment in recent, you know, say 15 years, especially. I don't think it helps that literature and the humanities in general have abandoned the humanistic approach to teaching, where you're reading literature to learn something about yourself and about other people. And when you lay these intense theoretical frameworks on it, or really more commonly, I mean, that was Duke in the 90s, really it's become this heavily politicized reading where you're reading, you know, Shakespeare, say, to expose the, you know, cis-heteronormative white capitalist patriarchal propaganda that Shakespearean plays embody. Basically evil, the past is evil. I think at a certain point, people are going to say, well, why bother reading these books at all? Like there was some bad logic, but at least a logic to the idea that like, well, we're all reading, you know, Dickens and Milton and Shakespeare. People have to read it in this stuff in high school. And so we need to unmask the structures of power that they embody. But now it's like nobody's reading them. Nobody would be reading them if they didn't read them in your classes. So why bother teaching them at all? Well, you're going to keep teaching them because that's your job. But students are going to say, I think some students have said like, well, you know, let's just forget about this stuff. I'll go, you know, I'll go study something else. Well, I mean, there seem to be two critiques of academia out there. And one is that these are just feeder schools for, you know, the capitalist system, you know, just cranking out people to go work in McKinsey and Bain and Goldman and whatever. And then the other critique is that these are indoctrination camps teaching everybody to be radicals. And, you know, can those both be true at the same time? Oh, yes. They can definitely both be true. So is there some underlying logic? Can you tie these two together without being some kind of grand conspiracy theorist? Yes, I've written about this. So first of all, let's say it's important to say that producing employees for the fancy consulting and finance companies, we're talking about the most selective colleges. And we should always remember in discussions of higher ed that the vast majority of the system, different kinds of students different kinds of postgraduate destinations. Okay, but we're talking about the elite. We're talking about the top 12 or 50 colleges and universities, but they're important because they are creating the American elite. They really do. How is it possible that a student studies, you know, radical theory in college and then goes to work on Wall Street? I don't know how it's possible, but they do it all the time. And to me, and this is a relatively recent phenomenon, this intense politicization of the undergraduate experience. I mean, I encountered it in graduate school when I arrived in 89, but that it's really penetrated, you know, critical theory. To me, it's just a fig leaf. It's a moral alibi for the individualistic, careerist, competitive, capitalist, meritocratic project that these students have continued to pursue. They're not all graduating and becoming Che Guevara. They're graduating and doing the same damn things they were doing 10 years ago. It's just now they think that they're going to change the world. They're going to dismantle systems of oppression. So then they go and they become the captains of, of woke capital, right? Of woke Inc. And they, you know, they have corporate mission statements that are all about diversity, but it doesn't mean a damn thing. Or maybe it means that you subject your employees to diversity training which employs, you know, the 5% of students who aren't going to Wall Street because they really do want to change the world. What do they do? They become diversity trainers. So now there's a whole industry, a multi-billion dollar industry of former liberal arts students who are going around basically making everybody miserable because it, it's totally counterproductive. So that's my answer. They slot together rather comfortably. 
Now, next on Sheep, you know, you spend time also talking about parenting. It's not the main thrust of your book, but it's a logical kind of flowback from what the admissions folks are looking for. And, you know, it seems almost impossible for people to check out at any point in this system. If the parents don't teach their kids and raise their kids to be these extracurricular super people, then they don't get into the universities. And if they don't get into the universities and they don't get the jobs and so forth. So, I mean, you know, is it possible to be independent? I mean, I went to university around the same time you did. So it was before, I think, the worst of these. And my approach to education was, I'm just going to become as educated as I can. And it's somebody else's job to figure out what pieces of paper I get as a result. <laughs> I don't know. Somehow I managed to pull it off. But of course, it didn't result in a research academic position. So to just sort of check out of the system and, and make education your goal, it seems almost impossible at this stage. I don't think I would have been able to survive and thrive in today's academic world if I had taken the approach that I did. I agree. I think it's a lot harder for students. I mean, what I will always say to students is you have much more freedom than you think. It will involve making trade-offs. If you pursue education, fulfillment, purpose, happiness, you're probably going to have to give up some amount of status, wealth, and security. But if you do the opposite, it's also a trade-off. You're going to maximize status, wealth, and security, and the trade-off is going to be you're going to have less fulfillment, purpose, and happiness. I mean, we have surveys of people in high-status professions that show how miserable they are. But the student has the freedom to make those choices. They certainly have much more freedom to go to a different kind of college than the one their parents are pushing them towards. I mentioned in the book that there was a study. It was actually done twice the second time with a larger, much larger sample because nobody believed the results the first time, where they matched students who went to elite colleges with students who got into elite colleges but went to not elite colleges, usually for financial reasons. So say a student who went to Princeton and a student who could have gone to Princeton got into Princeton but went to Penn State. On average, there was no difference in future earnings. On average, no difference. This is counterintuitive because if you look at the average earnings of a Princeton graduate, it's much higher than the average earnings of a Penn State graduate. But it's not because they went to Princeton. It's correlation. It's a selection rather than treatment, right? You're selecting for students who would have been successful anyway, and they'll be successful no matter where they go. It is true, though. I mean, just sort of the brief way you described your path, you know, if a student is really a seeker, cares about learning, is less worried about accumulating credentials, they can do it. But it's harder because college costs more, because everything costs more. Some people still make that choice and are happy having made the choice, even though it's a struggle. But it's a struggle that they're willing to put up with because they can stand their lives. Well, I mean, does that sort of start at the parenting stage, the inculcation of some curiosity or desire for the you know pursuit of whatever it is, truth, beauty, and goodness. I mean, universities are not going to be the place where one learns this for the most part. I mean, is it imperative that it be seeded at, at an earlier stage in life? I mean, my parents never really pressured me to do anything different from what I did. And I think, you know, to a large part, I have to give them credit for that. So, you know, if I spent a year studying the humanities and living off uh, potatoes, I didn't get too much grief from my parents. Perhaps in today's world, you would get quite a bit of grief if you were coming from an elite family. Yeah. Let me say, first of all, I don't think it's true that you can't get that at university. There are some schools, a few schools that really do cater to students who are intellectually and morally and spiritually serious. Like the St. John's Great Books Colleges, there's one in New Mexico, there's one in Maryland, and a few other schools. And even at regular schools, there are opportunities to pursue those things. It's hard, right? Because your peers are telling you that you're being stupid for not majoring in computer science. And all of the chatter and all of the herd mentality is going in a different direction. But at any school, just about, there are professors who would be delighted, who are delighted when they encounter students who are really passionate. Okay. But it can't start there. And you are absolutely right that parents are crucial here. What they say, but much more importantly, what they actually do, what they show their kids, they value. There's no faking that. And yes, the students I've known who've had more inner freedom, which is really what I think we're talking about, more inner freedom 
to direct their life the way they want to, to follow the direction of, I'm not going to say passion or bliss, but it's about energy, really. It's like, what energizes you? Where's the juice? Like, what makes you want to go towards it instead of being dragged towards it? Those kids, by and large, had parents who endowed them with that kind of freedom in the way that it sounds like your parents did. And for ones who grow up with the typical upper middle class, helicopter, bulldozer, tiger, whatever your metaphor parent is, as I did, you have to fight for it a lot harder. Now, if you were trying to design a strategy for maybe unraveling this equilibrium to some extent, where would you start? Could a single one of our elite universities decide to unilaterally, say, emphasize the importance of teaching? Could a university say, we're going to carve out a certain subset of our student body and give them the freedom to achieve credentialing in a very different way? Could a donor, for instance, and I've seen examples of donors making huge donations to universities with strings attached saying, I want to support this particular type of activity. And the, you know, the universities oftentimes will resist this. How, if you were to design a, a strategy for maybe pushing things in a different equilibrium, where would you start? Would it be about educating recruiters, educating parents, educating administrators? You know, because it seems like there's so much pressure to conform at every stage of the process. Yeah. If we're talking about an individual university, they can always do what they want. It's like a human being, like the kids I was just talking about. They're just going to be consequences. You know, it's going to come with a loss of prestige or it's going to come, you know, if it's a high school that sends a lot of kids to the Ivy League, but the kids are all miserable. I mean, I've spoken in high schools like this. I've spoken in high schools like this because the kids are miserable and they want somebody to come and say, like, calm down, it's going to be okay. But then they never change. It doesn't help. I mean, it helps the students who hear me, but it doesn't really change anything because the high schools, they have a business model. It's about getting large amounts of money from wealthy people with the implicit promise that your kid's going to get into an Ivy League or equivalent school. And if they do things differently so that kids are learning more and are happier, but aren't getting into the same kinds of schools, the parents will take their money elsewhere. So they're trade-offs which is why, no, an individual university probably isn't going to do this. In fact, the ones that are different are becoming more like the others. The truth is that, to me, the, the necessary solutions are very big solutions that are probably pretty unlikely to happen. And they're not even specific necessarily to higher education. To me, what's ultimately driving all of this is inequality. It's inequality. The more we sort society into a few winners big, big, big winners and a lot of losers, the more parents are understandably going to want to get their kids into the few schools that seem to guarantee there's going to be one of the winners. If we had a, you know, a robust middle class, if you could, you know, support a family and send your own kids to college with one middle class salary, I think there would be much less of this mania. So that's obviously a very big thing to do, but it would also make everything else better. I mean, to me, this inequality is the besetting sin. It is the fundamental problem of just about everything in American life, including all of our political pathologies. That's what I believe. More specifically focused on higher ed, not entirely unrelated, we need to, I'm going to say, bring down college costs. We need to eliminate college costs. We had a system where college was free or very cheap for a long time. The University of California, which was the best system in the world, was free. People think free college is a ridiculous idea. It could never happen. It happened. We did it. If we did that, it would change the calculus for everybody about where you go, about what you major in, about what you do afterwards. And it's a matter of taxing ourselves to pay for it, which is what I think we need to do. But it also seems, you know, if we're devoting such a huge percentage of GNP to education, there seems remarkably little research on the impact. I mean, we know, we seem to know more about the incremental impact of showing somebody a Facebook ad than we know about the incremental impact of sending somebody to this school or that school. Not just in terms of the things that we're obsessed with, like income and career progression, but the things that, you know, matter that we don't measure, like happiness, well being, fulfillment, and so forth. So why aren't we spending more researching this? It seems like a, obviously, 
doing A-B testing and experimentation is going to be a little tough, right? We can't just sort of assign a group of students to, you know, this school versus that school. But at least we could start by, you know, tracking some of these other metrics like life satisfaction and so forth. And then maybe, you know, doing more of the kind of analytics that you described where we compare people going to different schools. And then that could result in maybe a different type of ranking system to compete with the U.S. News ranking system, where it says, hey, the students with relatively minimal expenditure leave making huge strides in their lives, both career-wise and in satisfaction, right? But we don't seem to have any data and we don't seem to have any analytics on these things that matter, even though it represents a gigantic percentage of our lifetime expenditure and GNP. I'm not really sure we could have analytics on that. I mean, you could measure future earnings. Yes, you can do surveys of satisfaction. I don't know how valuable they are, even as measures of satisfaction. But the real problem is that you can't isolate the variables. I mean, I guess you're saying, well, you know, if we had large sample sizes, the variables would cancel each other out, people who are naturally predisposed, et cetera, et cetera. I don't know that we would really get meaningful information, really meaningful differential information that we would find in graduates of, you know, Agnes Scott College in near Atlanta are happier on average than people who went to University of Missouri. I mean, I'm skeptical about that. And I think, quite frankly, a lot of harm has been done in education, both at the college level and in K through 12, by trying to measure things, either measuring things that can't be measured, or actually what really happens is that you measure the things that can be measured. Probably you don't do a very good job with that, but even if you do, you're only measuring them because you can measure them, but they're not the important thing. Like you can measure future salary, but you can't measure how much you grew as a person. I mean, how do you do that? Yeah, I don't have an answer to that, but it's certainly worth the effort, one would think. Well, maybe it's worth thinking about how you could try to do that. You know what? I will say this. I spoke at Lawrence University in Wisconsin some years ago. Not a famous school, but a really good kind of regional liberal arts college. When professors come up for tenure, they don't just look at teaching evaluations. They contact their former students. So what Lawrence recognizes is that your understanding of how valuable your college experience was is not necessarily very reliable as you graduate from college. But 20 years later, it can be quite meaningful. So if we're going to do the kind of research you're talking about, I would like to see that. I would like to see it done that way. Yeah, I mean, I tell my students that I, too, agree the customer's right, but the customer is, the f- is your future self. That's very well said. That's very well said. And it does cause them to think just a little bit right, about, you know, but I guess the last question I have for you is towards the end of your book, Excellent Sheep, and also in some of the essays on the end of solitude, I mean, you talk about the psychological state of typical undergraduate, typical high school student, and, you know, how much unhappiness, how much loneliness and so forth there is. And it seems like it's only gotten worse. Certainly those essays that you wrote were pre-pandemic. And it seems like the pandemic has just exacerbated these trends. Is there going to be a point where, you know, a breaking point or will we just keep putting more? I mean, I think it seems I don't know any students that aren't in therapy now. I mean, every single student is and it seems like the university's way of dealing with this is to just, you know, add more therapists and try to ameliorate the consequences rather than maybe address the causes. Yeah. So the essays I wrote about solitude and so forth, that's like 2009, 2010. I joined Facebook in 2008, and that's really what I was responding to in myself and my, what I saw among my friends. It's not just that the pandemic has happened since then. Something, I mean, that was a big blow to people's, especially young people's mental health. The big thing that's happened since then, and even since I finished writing Excellent Sheep in 2013, came out the following year, is the smartphone. The smartphone plus social media. I mean, Facebook was already pretty popular among young people. We didn't really have Twitter was, and certainly not Instagram, let alone TikTok. But even when I was writing about Facebook and solitude in 2009, we were looking at it on our laptops. And then we closed our laptops and we went about our business. The iPhone, I think, was 2008 and it reached 50% penetration around 2012, 2013. And if you read people like Gene Twenge or Jonathan Haidt, who are writing about the cliff that teen mental health went off of right during those years, 2012, 2013. It's the smartphone plus social media. Now it's always with you. And then we got the pandemic, okay? 
So in Excellent Sheep, I'm writing about what students are telling me about their misery before the smartphone, right? Just based on the college admissions rat race and the post-college job search rat race. So then we add, you know, we, we multiply by smartphone and then we multiply again by pandemic. How long can this go on? Well, I like to say that our time, our age is characterized by two kinds of phenomena. Things that could never happen, that happen, Donald Trump gets elected. Things that could never get worse, that keep getting worse. Political polarization, teen mental health. I don't know how much worse it could get. I don't know any reason why it should stop getting worse if we keep doing the same things we're doing. Certainly isn't going to get better. And I don't mean to be reductive, but I think if I would pick one point of attack, it would be inequality. It's not going to solve all the problems, but I think it would really solve a lot of them and make them all a lot better. Now, look, you're a teacher. This is your life. This is what you do. How can one be a teacher if one's not attached to an academic institution? Can you wander the streets of Athens and tap people on the shoulder? <laughs> is there a way to teach apart from being a writer, apart from sending your text out into the world? You're the one who said I'm a teacher. I am a teacher at heart. It is what I feel called to do. I am not employed as a teacher. I do not currently have students. I am still in touch with many of my former students, and there are other young people who've contacted me and who I've become a mentor to. And I speak at a lot of colleges and high schools, and I reach students that way. But as you suggested, I'm mainly a writer. I don't know that I think of myself as a teacher, as a writer. I mean, yes, when I'm writing about this stuff and I'm addressing young people, I grant you that. I mean, much of my writing is not that. Could I have students outside of an institutional context? Well, I've heard from a fair number of people since Excellent Sheep came out about various kinds of para-institutional educational situations that they know about or have created or have tried to create, and more power to them. They tend to be very small. They often are very unstable. A bunch of the ones that I've heard about no longer exist. I suppose that if I didn't have to make a living, I could wander the streets. I'm not sure anybody would listen to me. I will say, though, that there is a tremendous hunger among young people for guidance and among adults for this kind of humanistic education, this kind of wisdom, but not wisdom where someone's imparting you wisdom, you know, wisdom in the sense of let's open this text together and see what it has to say to us. People want that. I think a lot of people want that a lot more than have the chance to do it, or they'll, you know, watch an online course, or they'll join a uh, reading group. But it's, you know, it's hard to find the time. I, I would say a lot of the people who do those things are retired, and now they have the time. Well, Bill, thanks so much for joining me. The latest book is a series of essays. Some of them go way back to your dance critic days and all the way fast forward to near contemporary. The book's called End of Solitude. Essays on Culture and Society. And of course, don't forget Excellent Sheep, Death of the Artist, and The Jane Austen Education, which I, I really enjoyed. And it made me want to go back and reread a bunch of the Jane Austen novels that I read a long time ago. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www dot unsiloedpodcast.com.